There's a question that I always hate. Someone comes up to me and says, I have some bad news and I have some good news. Do you want the good news first or do you want the bad news? And I hate it because it always produces anxiety in me. Do I choose the good news first so that it kind of bolsters me for the bad news? Or do I choose the bad news first so that it kind of lingers? Um, not the bad news lingers. So that it, it's short-lived and what lingers in my mind is the good news. That's what I'm trying to say there. My family and I sometimes will watch the ABC Evening News. And I don't know why I do this. One of our family members always leaves when we turn it on. Because for half an hour, there's an onslaught of just bad news. One piece of bad news after another. And I feel, I guess, a morbid curiosity to, to stay up with some of the events happening. But they always have this segment at the end with David Muir called America Strong. And it's usually a, a good story, some good news. And sometimes my wife and I just make it through that show and we're like, Man, I hope the America Strong segment is really good because that was just really brutal going through that. Well, we're going to see in our study today, Jesus presented with some really bad news. Tragic news, really. Horrific news. And he's going to respond maybe somewhat unexpectedly with a, a question of his own. And then he's going to present some bad news which really just paves the way for the good news which he's always willing to share with people. And so we're going to look at what is called one of those hard sayings of Jesus. So I just want to give you a heads up on this. Uh, it's, it's a little bit difficult for us to digest. Not the least of which is because I think sometimes when we hear what we're going to hear Jesus saying, we don't take into account the original context in which he's speaking. So I just want to give you that heads up. And we're going to call our study today, Life is Short. And what I want to do is invite you to join with the company of disciples and those curious and interested in what Jesus is saying is Jesus makes this long march to Jerusalem where not only he's going to encounter some really bad news, but he's going to embrace it. He knows that he is going to be betrayed. He knows that in this wicked alliance between the religious leaders of his day and the Roman authorities, they're going to put him to death. And so Jesus has been, been preparing people for that. He's been calling people away from their desire to pick a fight with Rome and to embrace his way of peace. And so if you're just exploring the gospel of Jesus, we want to encourage you to listen to what he says because this really gets at the heart of what he's trying to get people to awaken to and understanding his message. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you're going to be encouraged to embrace that good news all the days of your life, to, to live in light of it. And so we're going to take a look at this hard saying of Jesus. But before we dive into it, let's pray and, and ask the Lord to tend the soil of our hearts. Lord, we do live in a world that is filled with bad news. Yes, there's moments of good news. Yes, there are moments that make us smile. But even just this last week with the news coming across our feeds and on the television screens, it just weighs us down. Lord, we, we long to be reset upon you, to hear words of hope and refreshment from you. And so as we look at this, this passage from the life of Jesus, would you help us to, to perhaps get through the initial shock of what he says, to, to hear his heart, to hear what he's inviting us to as he speaks to these original people living some 2,000 years ago. And I pray, Lord, that you open our eyes and stop our ears and Open our hearts to receive the word you want to plant in us this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So this is how this section of Luke opens in chapter 13. This is what the physician wants us to know. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus has been calling people to respond to his message, to get right with God. And in the midst of him speaking and declaring this message, some news arise, horrific news, tragic news of an atrocity that took place. Some Galilean people had traveled to Jerusalem to make sacrifices. And there, Pilate, the the governor of Judea, who seemed at times to take a perverse delight in provoking the Jewish people, did the unthinkable. He sent in some soldiers who slaughtered these worshipers and mixed their blood with their sacrifices. I'm not sure beyond just the initial horror of just something like this happening, how offensive this would have been to the audience that Jesus heard. I tried to think of a way that, that might help us, and I really couldn't come up with something. I, I, thought, about, I thought about this example. What if, what if the governor of the state of Texas, who in some, some Aggies went to Austin to a worship service, sent in the Texas Rangers and had them slaughtered and mixed their blood with the communion wine? I mean, we can't even really get our minds around something so absurd as that happening. But the shock of a fellow Aggies being slaughtered would hit home. And I think it would hit home with them. And just like any tyrant wants to send a message, no doubt Pilate, who would later put Jesus to death, wanted to send a message to the Jewish people at that time. Do not mess with Rome. Was this a shot across the bow to Jesus and his movement and all his talk about the revolutionary coming of the kingdom of God? I mean, maybe. We don't know that for sure. But a lot of people would have been thinking that. And so let me ask you the question. How do you think Jesus would respond to news of his fellow countrymen being murdered? I mean, if he is the Messiah, he should be outraged. And this should be really the spark his followers might be thinking that would lead him to go into Jerusalem and start the revolution to kick out Rome and reclaim Israel as supreme among the nations. That's certainly what a lot of people wanted. That's what they're expecting Jesus to do. But Jesus, perhaps because he's been hanging around these people, also know there's a different strand of thinking in some people's minds. And because this strand was at work, he addresses that first and then goes back to the first line of thinking and brings it back up. So he asked the question. He doesn't doesn't come across as outrage, but he asked his audience a question. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? What an interesting question for Jesus to ask. The reason I think he asked this is because that strand of thought is in a lot of people's minds, his original audience, and ours as well. One of the oldest writings in the Hebrew scriptures is the book of Job. And Job had been severely afflicted, had experienced tragedy after tragedy, and he had some friends that came to him. And one of his friends, Eliphaz, said this, Consider now, who, being innocent, has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? And his thinking the righteous and the upright, those who follow God, 
don't have anything bad happen to them. And so if something bad happens, it's obviously that person's fault. Fast forward to the time of Jesus, and there's this time where Jesus was journeying, and the gospel writer John tells us this. As he passed by, he, that is Jesus, saw a man, born, uh, uh, a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, even his disciples were thinking, if this man was born blind, there's obviously a reason why that happened. Either he sinned, or his parents sinned. And Jesus said, that's not the reason. Neither one of those reasons is why this happened. And he says, in a strange way to our senses, this happened that the works of God might be displayed in him. And Jesus went and then healed that man. So when Jesus asked the question to his disciples, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Some in the audience might be saying yes. Even though it was wrong for Pilate to slaughter them, if something bad happened, then maybe that was a judgment upon them. In our day and age, we, we say karma kicked in. <laughs> or they must have done something bad. But Jesus answers his own question this way. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's an interesting answer to Jesus' own question. Remember his question was, did these Galileans die and suffer because they were worse sinners than anyone else? And the answer was, no, that is not why that happened. And we need to hear that because I get so tired of when a tragedy hits to hear people on TV and Christian pastors say, the reason that happened is because X, Y, and Z. That's the one thing we must not say. Some of the prophets said that in the scriptures because they were speaking under divine inspiration. But unless God reveals something like that to us, we shouldn't speak and say that was a judgment of God upon them. So did these Galileans die because they were sinners? Jesus said, no, that's not why at all? And then he says, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, one of the reasons why this is a hard saying of Jesus is because we're, we, we tend to take this and just put it right in our own present time and ask the question, how does this apply to us? And we're going to do that in a minute. But first of all, we need to ask, what did this mean when he said this? What does Jesus mean when he says, likewise perish? In a similar manner, or in the same way, you will perish. N.T. Wright, theologian and professor, helps us out. He raises that question, likewise, or the same way? That's the key, he says. Jesus isn't talking about what happens to people after they die. Many have read this passage and suppose that is what he is warning about, perishing in hell after death. But that is clearly wrong. In line with the warnings he has, he, has, he has issued several times already and will continue to issue right up to his own crucifixion, Jesus is making it clear that those who refuse his summons to change direction, to abandon the crazy flight into national rebellion against Rome, will suffer the consequences. Those who take the sword will perish with the sword. Remember, there are a lot of people at the time of Jesus who wanted someone to arise who could lead that nation into a war with Rome. 
And so Jesus says, unless you repent from that desire, you will likewise perish. Likewise how? In the same way how? Just like Pilate was ruthless in the slaughtering of those worshipers, so Rome is going to be ruthless in the slaughtering of you. Verse 4, he picks another headline from the news and says, Are those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? What a horrible tragedy to hear of a a tower falling and, and people dying. I mean, we know stories like that. And so Jesus asked the question, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Did did what happened to them happen because they were somehow worse? That word offenders is the same word that is translated in, in the Lord's Prayer when we ask the Lord to forgive our debts as we have forgiven those who are indebted to us. That word indebted is the same word used here. Do you think that they were worse debtors to God? are worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem. And then Jesus answers his own question again. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. How is it that they would likewise perish? Remember their dreams of a national rebellion against Rome. Jesus is offering a different way, a way of peace. He's telling people to love even their enemies. He's calling them away from that. Again, N.T. Wright is helpful. He said, those who take the sword will perish with the sword, or if not the sword, they will be crushed as the siege brings them crashing down. Building accidents happen, but if the Jerusalem, Jerusalem might, that's a hard word to get out. If they continue to refuse God's kingdom call to repent, to turn from their present agendas, then those who escape Roman swords will find the very walls collapsing on them as the enemy closes in. Here Jesus is beginning to speak in a cryptic way what he will make more clear later on when they arrive in Jerusalem and his disciples say, look at the beauty of this temple. And Jesus says, I tell you, not one stone will be left on another. But in this thread, in this line of thinking, Jesus now uses an illustration. Let's see what he says. Verse 6 says, verse 6 says, He told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he came to the vine dresser. Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year... Well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. What does this story about a fig tree in a vineyard have to do with what Jesus was just talking about? What we need to know to understand this story is that in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, God's people were oftentimes referred to as God's vineyard. And here Jesus speaks of a tree that should be producing fruit. That place in Israel for a fig tree to produce fruit, it should be producing fruit for about 10 years out, or I'm sorry, 10 months out of the year. And so year after year, the owner of the vineyard comes looking for the fruit and it's not there. And he says, you know what, we should just cut this down. 
It's not doing its job. We can plant another one. And the vine dresser says, well, let's just give it one more year. Let me fertilize it and let's see if it produces a crop. Philip Ryken in his commentary helps us understand exactly what's going on here. He says, this parable is about God's patience with his people Israel. They had every opportunity to come to Christ and bear good fruit. For nearly three years, Jesus had been healing them and teaching them to follow God. Alas, they were bearing so little fruit. Most rejected Jesus. So this parable of the vineyard is a description of time coming to a close for the nation of Israel. God had come to them in the person of Jesus. And they rejected him. Fast forward to when Jesus was arrested and he stood before Pilate and Pilate, finding no guilt in him, wants to release him. But the crowds want him executed. And so he comes up with this plot thinking, I'm going to pull up Barabbas, who's an insurrectionist and a murderer, and I'm going to give them the choice. Which one do they want, Jesus or Barabbas? Pilate said to the crowds, to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Basically, what happens with this man is not on me. If you want him dead, you kill him. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Jesus had offered people a way of peace to follow him. Yes, he's a different kind of Messiah than he was wanting. But his kingdom is a kingdom of peace. And he invites them to come. And he uses power differently than anyone else saw. And so in that moment, Jesus allowed himself to be crucified. He was saying another place before this event happened that no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down on his own initiative. And so in this moment of human wickedness, conspiring to put to death Jesus, the Prince of Peace, in this moment... God laid upon him the sins of people like you and me and condemned it in his flesh. And so Jesus became obedient to death. What a stunning picture of the audience's refusal to follow the way of Jesus. To want nothing more to do with him. To nail him to a cross. And to say, we don't want you. We don't want your message. We reject it. Riken again said, most rejected Jesus, yet in his mercy, God would give them one final opportunity. Jesus would die on the cross. He would be raised from the grave. His gospel would be preached in Israel. Thus, there was still time for people to repent and bear good spiritual fruit through faith in Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, the window of opportunity would not stay open forever. This was the last chance for the people of that generation. If they did not repent, they would perish, as many of them did. Not many years, sorry, not many, can you go back, Jason? 
Not many years later, Jerusalem was besieged, the temple destroyed, and Israel was scattered. And that's exactly what happened. Within a generation, the Jewish nation got what it wanted, a fight with Rome. What was referred to as the Jewish Wars, which began in 66 AD, ended with the Roman armies surrounding Jerusalem, laying siege to that city. And Titus, the general, in AD 70, gave his troops the go-ahead to go into Jerusalem. And many were slaughtered by the sword, and they tore apart that city. And even their beautiful temple was destroyed, and not one stone left on top of another. People died at the brutality of Rome. So that generation did not heed the message of Jesus. What about us in our generation? How do we process what Jesus is saying here and apply it to our own lives? And let me just raise this important point. When we see dictators killing and towers tragically falling, let us remember that life is short and we too will one day step off the stage of the world to meet our maker. The words of Psalm 39 O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. What interesting imagery the psalmist uses. All mankind stands as a mere breath. Think about that imagery. What is your life? What is mine? Life is short. I hope each and every one of us lives a long life. But I don't know how long we go. But what I do know from what the scriptures tell us, not only our birth date, but also our death date has been determined. And I don't know about you, but I want to go out in my sleep... (laughs) Peacefully sleeping, oblivious to what's going on. But that's not guaranteed. I don't know how I'm going to exit this world. And neither do you. Just like those Galileans who went to worship that day, not thinking that was going to be their last. Or those people in Jerusalem who, horror upon horror, suffered the fate at the falling of that tower. We don't know how many days we got. But two points of application I'd like to drive home for us in this. Since life is short, there is no more important time to turn to God than now. And we've been given every reason to turn to God. Jesus, over and over again, called people to turn to God. And even this day, that invitation goes forward. Those beautiful words from John chapter 3, verse 16, spoken by Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is thinking not perishing in the sense of not dying in this life, but standing before God and not perishing for eternity. The Apostle Peter would tell his readers, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Or the Apostle Paul in his book to the Romans, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? There we see Jesus and two of his, his 
most important men speaking to us about words of repentance. And let's get clear in our minds. Repentance essentially means a change in our minds that leads to a change of direction in our life. When a lot of people hear the word repentance, they, they think of penance. Penance is something that a person does to punish themselves in the hopes that if they can show God that they're sorry enough by inflicting pain on themselves, then God might be moved to compassion. And that's a way to try to manipulate God. That's not what we're talking about here. Repentance is simply receiving the summons to turn back to God, who is full of kindness and richness and mercy. Jesus is more than a perfect savior to save us from our sins. So repentance is having a change of mind about the direction of our life and turning back to God and turning back to Christ. And so, my friends, if you have not done that, let me urge you to make that definitive to this this day. None of us know how long our life is. Whether we live nine days or 99 years, life is short. So there's no better time than today to turn in repentance to God. But even when we start, that's not the end. The reformer John Calvin said, repentance is not merely the start of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. In other words, we don't just turn back to God once and then we're done. Our whole lives are to be a continual turning back to God. There's not a single day in which you and I do not need to turn back to God. So let me ask you this question. Are you growing in repentance? Is there a sense in which you're learning that in following Jesus, part of what we do is we turn back to God regularly? throughout the day and throughout our lives. So my friends, since life is short, there is no more important time to turn to God than now. Here's our second and final point of application. Since life is short, let's live our short lives for Christ. There are many in that crowd today who are following Jesus, but had their own agendas. They had their own plans for how they wanted to see the future turn out. And I think many people do that today. They're, they're fans of Jesus. They like a lot of what he has to say. But they hold back different parts of their life because they have their own plans and their own agendas. And let's not make that mistake. The Apostle Paul, writing to believers living in the Roman city of Colossae, said he, he called them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. In other words, don't be like those who were not producing fruit in the time of Jesus. Let's respond to Jesus and produce fruit in keeping with that repentance. As the Apostle Paul would say to the Ephesians, we are God's workmanship or his handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Part of the design that God has for you and I is to walk in good works. Those things don't save us they don't bring us into relationship with God only his grace and mercy does but if we've experienced that then what else can we do but give back the life that he's given to us as a as a thank offering an offering of thanksgiving to him there's a song that we sing here at Mercy Hill which I was thinking about didn't have a chance to get it in the rotation for this week but it's that song oh love that will not let me go and it has this wonderful line I give thee back the life I owe that in thine ocean's depths its flow may richer, fuller be. In other words, we say to God, here's the life that you've given to me. It's yours. I, I owe it to you. My life is meant to be lived for you. 
And in the ocean's depth of, in other words, the ocean of your love, in those depths, my life will be richer and fuller if I follow you. So my friends, not only is the good news about Jesus the greatest news that has been heard, but it is the best possible news that could ever be heard and believed. That's what those people who originally heard Jesus say, uh, speak needed to hear. And that's the same good news that we need to hear as well. Jesus is the good news that we desperately need in this bad news world. And so when we follow him, no matter what happens, we are assured of life with him. Nabil Qureshi, the Muslim who turned to faith in Jesus, once said, without Jesus, we approach life with the expectation of death. With Jesus, we approach death with the expectation of life. Isn't that good? Let me read that one more time. Without Jesus, we approach life with the expectation of death. But with Jesus, we approach death with the expectation of life. So Mercy Hill Church, since life is short, may you always be turning back to the Lord, walking in a manner fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work as you increase in the knowledge of God.